So I asked Daniel to put our welcome slide back up. Can you remember when you were a kid and you realized you're going to have to go get a shot for the first time? Or maybe you're going to have a, a, a difficult meeting at work or something and you think, you know, I just got to get through this. I got to, get a, I got to find a way to get through it. Well, this is a quote from Dallas Willard's The Great Omission. And uh, this is the way I'm going to get through meeting in this classroom here. This is my, this is my little mantra. This is how I'm going to get a shot, is to just realize that um, in the underground church in China today, they're meeting who knows where. All over Africa, churches are meeting under trees. And um, yes, we're in a classroom. It's not the, the greatest sacred space in the world, I suppose, especially for an ordination. Sorry, you three. But I got ordained in a dank, dark chapel in Houston International Intercontinental Airport <laughs> with like a homeless guy sleeping on, a, on the only pew in the room. So people have got ordained in worse places. But, uh, and we're, we're working hard. In fact, if you want to pray, uh, a group of us, we have a facilities team that we've put together along with our church council who is going to look at a facility on Tuesday and to um, think and pray about that. So pray for us. Maybe we won't, we won't be in here all summer after all, but we'll see. As long as we're here, though, we're just going to know that all the church needs to fulfill Christ's purpose on earth is the quality of life that he makes real in us, his disciples. And that's actually the truth. <laughs> Although I'd prefer another place, too. You know why? Here's one reason why. This is often my classroom when I teach here. <laughs> so I have to make sure I don't go all professorial on you, but I, I promise not to do it. All right, now you can put up our ordinary time slide. So as Beth suggested, uh, during these 24 weeks of ordinary time, we are going to go on a journey with the minor prophets for um, taking a very gentle outward turn, I hope, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But the idea is that we sit here today, as Beth said, with the, Christ, with the church having the light of Christ, with us, us personally having the light of Christ, and so we're going to look back at what God was saying and doing, and these are foremothers and forefathers, and we're going to do it for the purpose of letting the Holy Spirit shape in Holy Trinity um, whatever the Spirit's intention is for us, as we just all, um, one by one, and as together as a group, place ourselves over the summer uh, in these texts. I want to encourage you, if you'd like to, as you know, um, Holy Trinity is a no-bossy zone. We don't do bossy. Um, but if you would like, I would encourage you to read through these minor prophets with me and our other teachers this summer. Uh, and I would encourage you to do it in the message because it's just so much easier to see what's going on. They're more narratival. It's just kind of, yeah, you get a glimpse of characters better, I think. Um, but if you'd rather read it in the NIV or ESV or something, of course, that's fine. If you don't own a copy of the message, just go to BibleGateway.com, and you can read just a, you're only going to be reading a chapter or two a week, maybe three or four, and you could always, you could always read it on Bible Gateway. But you might just find, for especially those of you who are a little nervous about the minor prophets and getting into them, you might have an easier time doing it in the message. All right, ready to go? Here we go. Ordinary time in the Minor Prophets. 
So the first thing to say, I'm always aware of this, is that it's too much, it would be too much to say that this is going to be a study in the Minor Prophets. Um, we just don't have time in 20-minute sermons to do deep, detailed Hebrew exegesis. So I'm not pretending to do that. Um, this is not going to be that kind of Bible study. I want this to be more like spiritual listening, just kind of listening spiritually to these texts, wondering what they have to say to us. And as I said, I'm hoping that as they form us in Christ, that there is a gentle, but you are left in charge with your life before Christ. Like, I am not up here trying to bend you, guide you, move you, manipulate you. I, I'm, I'm like literally a priest standing between God and his word and us as a community and just trying to facilitate whatever the text might actually be saying to us. But I do want to suggest that there are some aspects of spiritual growth that just can't be learned in contemplation or silence or solitude or study. Some aspects of our formation in Christ can only be learned in interactions with others. And not just the discipline of community, even in the way some of you might think of it, but the discipline of interacting with the other, as the Bible would think of the other, the least, the last, the lost, the left out, those kinds of people. So the background to Hosea is this, that outwardly, because Israel had gained a bunch of land, it allowed them to have really secure major trade routes. And so the economy was doing good in Hosea's times. New homes were being built. They thought they had good treaties with their powerful neighbors. So just think of us hearing in the news that like things were really solid with China or Russia. It was that kind of thing. Uh, they were prospering, and they really were at their kind of economic and political peak. But inwardly, in the people themselves, there was syncretism. Very much like today, the people of God had a mix-and-match quality to their religion. And so they tended then to have loyalty to whatever God could get them what they desired. So the Baals. These, the, the Baals were known as, the, they were the Cainite storm gods. And as such, they were reputed to be responsible for good soil, weather, and crops. Now, this is one of those places where I know we're not an agrarian society, we don't tend to worship these pagan gods in our culture today. So here's how you can get your head wrapped around this. What if suddenly some aspect of Buddhism or Hinduism made it possible to accurately predict the ups and downs of the stock market? So think about that. And even I know that's a little far-fetched. But you know darn well there are supposed Christians in our country who would syncretistically take on those Hindu and Buddhist practices if they had to in order to predict the ups and downs of the stock market. That's the kind of thing that was going on. Like, okay, Baal, if you'll give us good weather, then I don't see any harm in worshiping you too. Like maybe Yahweh, you know, you're still my BFF, but, but I can put a little Baal worship in here and, and that'll be okay because that'll ensure that we have good crops. And, and because we're an agrarian society and everything depends on these crops. Are you feeling me here? That, this is what's happening in their heads. This is the source of the syncretism. They're basically bartering for blessings so that they could remain in control of their lives. Now, that's a very important sentence. 
They were basically bartering for blessings so that they could maintain control over their lives. So here's a very good intro into the kind of work that these so-called minor prophets might want to do in our lives. By the way, let me say, these are not minor prophets in that they don't say important things. You should actually you should stop thinking about major and minor prophets. You should think about longer and shorter. That's what the words initially meant. It's just these are very short books. So they're not minor in, in importance, they're just short. So here's one of the things that these short books are going to confront us about over and over and over again. Catch this sentence. Maybe our wills, our, our present system of desires, are the most powerful false gods of all. I mean, we're just going to see this over and over and over again. That what comes out in Israel's behavior and attitudes is the desire to be in control according to their present system of desires. So while everything outwardly is good, inwardly, as God's chosen covenant people, you know, those who are to be holy and be his servants to others, and if you can reflect back to what we did when we were studying Genesis, remember I taught you about the logic of election. The logic of, of election isn't a capricious God for whatever dopey reason picked one group of people so that he could ignore everybody else. Now remember, that's not the logic of election. The logic of election is God chose the one for the sake of everybody else. Abraham, I'm choosing you. You're going to create a great nation, and this nation is going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Well, that's the story that Hosea thinks Israel is supposed to be living in. And this is what he's reflecting on as he does, as we heard John read to us this morning. So inwardly, though, Israel's countenance, uh, they're allowing oppression, greed, murder, lying, stealing, contemptible speech, etc. Essentially, what Hosea is saying is you forgot the law. And the law, remember, is not like red lights or the IRS or stop signs. Torah means training. Torah means God's relational guidance with the group of people. And they were throwing that off. And they weren't keeping their covenant. And so Hosea has in the back of his mind, very squarely, Deuteronomy. If you follow the covenant, God will bless you. If you don't, there will be training in the form of curses. Right? Remember Deuteronomy? This is what Hosea has in the back of his head, that in the worship of Baal, they had become idolaters. So now God, this relational God, is stuck. I mean, if we're looking at this as a story, if we're watching a movie, at this point we'd all, we'd all think, what the heck is God going to do now? Is he stuck? And so in Hosea, we have a revelation of the love of God for his wayward people. And, and here I have to say again, because there have been plenty of feminist theologians who cannot stand this story of Hosea. And some of you ladies can maybe see why. Um, but this story could have been reversed. It could have been a wayward husband with a faithful wife. This is not about gender. But these are the kind of things that rise in these Old Testament stories. And so I want you to hear as we go into this that God always deals with people where they are. And so the Old Testament is progressive revelation. It doesn't mean that we go back to dietary laws or any of those kinds of things. It just means that we read it back with the light we presently have. 
the light we have in Christ and in God's kingdom and through the Spirit and, quote, the age of the church. But we see what God was doing. We let it form us in the way that he would want to form us today for this other future. So I just want to say as we're beginning this study to don't stumble over these kind of things when you read them. Just realize that God, out of love and wisdom, was always starting with where people are and training them. So then in chapter 1 in Hosea, we see where he's, he's told, as John read to us, to go marry a promiscuous wife. And this, of course, is an analogy. It's a metaphor that, like an adulterous wife, Israel was guilty of unfaithfulness. So the invitation here in this text is to put ourselves in Hosea's shoes. Or again, the genders could be reversed. We could be putting ourselves in a woman's shoes who had an unfaithful husband. But in this case, this illustration, we're meant to be feeling something. We're meant to feel the love and care and affection and affirmation that Hosea gives Gomer, only to be rebuffed in return. We're meant to feel the anguish and the pain of being rejected. Some of you have been rejected in these kinds of ways. And, and you can remember the pain associated with this kind of rejection. We're meant to think, get inside Hosea's head as he thinks, my wife has become a cult prostitute. She's now a sex slave for vicious men. We're meant to feel how he felt when he heard the gossip about her around town. We're meant to feel the rage that he maybe felt inside Maybe he came to the conclusion someday and saying, well, if you don't want my love, great, I'm out of here. I reject you. I reject you before you can reject me any further. This is what we're meant to feel. And we're meant to feel it for a very specific reason. We're meant to empathize with God as rejected creator. God as spurned lover or as deserted parent. Yet, as we read, God pours out his heart in unfailing covenant loving kindness, lamenting, warning, calling us home, giving us repeated chances to repent for the confused, unsure, wayward, or sinful parts of us. And then chapter 2 just shows us a bit about Hosea's unfaithful wife, again as a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness. But again, God responds well, I, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. And this is where you'll see how the message is so great to read this in. Um, I'll court her. I'll give her bouquets of roses. And she'll respond like she did when she was a young girl in Egypt. Now, what's the analogy there? Exodus. We're going back to Sinai. I'm gonna, we're going to start all over again, and we're going to go back to when it was good when we made covenant together, and God's saying, I'm going to woo her back there, Israel. I'm going to woo Israel back to that place. So then in chapter 3, we just see how God does that, how, how through the analogy of Hosea restoring things with Gomer, we see God restoring things with Israel. So again, the message puts it, God then ordered me, Hosea, to start all over with Goma, Gomer, to love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife, love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. And the effect will be 
I just I love the end of the passage here in Hosea 3, 5. The effect of this will be that Israel will return and seek. Israel will return and seek. I can't be the only one in this room who's ever wondered, can my distracted devotion really be healed? Can my deepest inner being really be transformed? Is it actually possible for me to be unhooked from the tyranny of my will, of my disordered desires, and to somehow live with a kind of unreserved devotion to Christ? Like, is this just religious rhetoric that we tell each other and we read in great and famous books? You know, is this actually possible? And the answer in our gospel reading this morning is yes, in Christ. So as, as the ordinance humbly said, yes, through the strength of Christ, I will. This is the story that Mark is telling us. And by the way, all summer we'll be reading Mark alongside these minor prophets. So when this scene unfolds that Jana read to us, a big part of what's happening here, and this is very hard for modern Christians to see because of our fixation on the blood of Jesus being our ability to go to heaven. And that is true. I'm not doubting that. But we've lost the bigger story. When Jesus comes into public, a big part of what's happening is God saying, this is Israel as I intended. This is what my people were intended to be. So if you, if you thought of a big hourglass shape, it's like all of Israel's history, all the ups and downs, from Abraham through John the Baptist, all the promises of God, at some point, they come down to the human shoulders of Jesus. And so you see this as the Gospels unfold. This is one of those places where it's all coming down to the shoulders of Jesus as he rises out of that water. The message to every contemporary Jew would have been, this is my people. This Jesus is humanity as God intended. This is what God intended with Adam and Eve. This is what God intended with the creation of Israel. This is my faithful son. With you, I am well pleased. And so in a sense, this is the bringing in or the beginning of the end of the final restoration of God. This is what Jesus means when he says the time is fulfilled. Switch metaphors from the hourglass to think of a sequencing. What does Jesus mean when he says the time is fulfilled, where it's something like all the preliminaries have been taken care of, and now there's this special moment in time. So Jesus is saying something like this. From the beginning of this story in the garden with Adam and Eve, through fall to Abraham, to um, judges, kings, prophets, up to John the Baptist. That was all preliminary stuff. Now this is the beginning of the end where God is going to actually restore his people. And that's the only reason we have any basis to try to answer yes to those questions that the transformation is possible, etc. So this is the beginning of the end. And what I want to say as we begin this series on the minor prophets is that this repentance and faith, this coming back, includes rediscovering who we are as the people of God. It is not simply about our moral 
or ethical or spiritual transformation. And, and if one wants to say that, I guess I could agree, if you include in our transformation a developing heart for those outside of us. If that gets included in that, then I'm okay. Because fundamental to what God's doing here, when everything comes down on the shoulders of his son, is a sentness from the counsel of the Holy Trinity of God, is the incarnation, a sentness. God sent his son. Jesus said, even as the Father sent me, so I send you. Then breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So a part of the repentance and faith that Jesus is calling for includes a rediscovering of who we are as the people of God, of sentness, and in caring for the other. Now look, I, I'm counting on, and I think I can count on, we've been together long enough that you, you know my heart, I feel like I know yours. And I feel like I know this congregation well enough to know that many of you found your way here having deconstructed really program-driven churches where every few weeks there was a new hill to climb. It was hype after hype after hype. And so you had to hype the next thing even more than you hyped the last thing. And, it, and, and so often these communities become veritable hype machines. And many of you were turned off by the hype, turned off by the manipulation, and you deconstructed it. And I want to say to you, maybe something you'll be surprised by. Well done. Seriously, well done. I mean, I'm sorry you had to go through it. I'm sure it was hard. But I'm just assuming it was a necessary part of your journey in Christ. So well done. But we can't stop there. We have to construct a positive alternative. There are things for us to do. What Jesus is calling us to is actually a kind of greatness, a divinely inspired greatness of character, of relationships, and of stewardship of life that ends up serving others. And I just want to say that Jesus is our model in this. Jesus said, I only do, do you hear that word? I only do the things I see my Father doing. So everybody look at me. What if we tried that instead of programmatic hype? And what if we tried that in a way that you're left in charge of your life and you're not manipulated by the programs of a church? <clears throat> What if you were able to serve God and others in a way that makes sense of your station in life, your gender, your workplace, your family structure, your commute? What if all that mattered? What if this is true? That your spiritual formation and your missional engagement with the world isn't something you add to an already over-busy, over-calendared, over-indebted life? What if what's true is your current eating, sleeping, getting up, going to work, and walking around life is the grounds, the soil for both your formation in Christ and your missional engagement with the world so that you don't have to add anything? And I don't have to force you through programs, through top-down, latest, greatest things. What if your life as it actually exists is the key to all this? Are we connecting here? This is deeply important. This is a major why in the road to any Christian community. So we have to construct something different, but I want to do it on the model of Jesus. I only do the things I see my Father doing. Jesus then said, remember John 14? You're going to do 
greater things because I'm going to the Father. And then at the very end of his life, I just so hope you'll catch this. The very end of his life, John 17, 4, Jesus is reflecting on his life and he commends himself to the Father with these words. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. That's Jesus' greatest sense of himself. I have done what my Father asked me to do. And of course, this is what Paul's picking up on, for instance, in Titus 2, where Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us. We all get that, right? If I say those words, Jesus gave himself for us, what do you immediately picture in your mind? Golgotha, right? The cross. That's what virtually every Christian would picture. Paul would include that, but goes beyond it by saying, he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people who are eager to be his own and eager to do good works. That's not the pastor of missions at a megachurch talking. Did you catch that? That's Paul saying, Jesus was given to us to purify us, to make us into a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so in Israel, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop with this, in the minor prophets and in God's interaction with Israel, as we will see in Hosea, that this is sometimes going to be disturbing before it's comforting. <laughs> so it's disturbing and that the book of Hosea won't let us settle for any kind of self-condemnation that's born from the psychology of our families of origin or of the hurts of our life. The prophets will not let you settle for that. You will not be able to settle for a psychologizing of your present position. As important as that is, they, they, they're just never going to let us settle there, especially if the psychology is a self-condemnation. That just doesn't work. It doesn't get us down the track where we're trying to go. But Hosea and the other minor prophets are going to insist that those feelings are not the same as hearing the judgment and the tender mercy of God. So it's disturbing and comforting, but they're just going to keep insisting that, that our growth is going to require the judgment of God, which just simply means seeing what's real from his point of view without our present mucked up lenses. Another very important sentence. They're not going to let us settle for the kind of self-condemnation that is unredemptive, it doesn't reconcile us to God. It doesn't reconcile us to our families of origin. It leaves us stuck. But we settle for that, fearing the judgment of God. But actually, the judgment of God is more like a surgeon's expert scalpel. You can trust it. And what, it, what that Holy Spirit surgeon does is clean and clear. It's much better than our own self-surgeries. So God cannot and doesn't wink at our sin and rebellion. He confronts false gods and spiritual adultery. He confronts our inconsistent discipleship, our lust for success, and shows us our need to return to the Lord. So then now comes the comfort. And Hosea shows us 
how God persistently makes a way to both comfort and heal us, how God patiently works on our minds and woos our hearts. And so in Hosea, one of the beautiful things we see, everybody please look me in the eye here, this is the last sentence. What we see in Hosea is that even if you're stuck in a false self-condemnation, even if you're stuck there, there's an againness to God's love. Again and again and again. He's not put off. He doesn't take the rebuff and say, well, I reject you before you reject me. No. What did Hosea say? I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to bring her back to that innocent place like we had at Sinai just after the exodus. And there, this againness to God's love is the, the main source and taproot of the comfort that we're meant to take away. And as we begin to explore this more deeply, do we actually care for the other? We're going to have to do this in the security that even if God cuts open our hearts and we find things that we don't particularly like, that there will be right behind that an againness to God's love. But I'll meet you right there. Right where whatever's real in your heart, I'll meet you right there. But I, I can't meet you if you're just simply in this unrealness of some sort of self-condemnation. Are you feeling me here? Self, think, just think of those words, hyphenated word. Self-condemnation. Versus judgment as seeing things as they're real from the mind of God, right? That leads always to the againness, to the it's okayness. I'll be with you in whatever's real, and we can just keep going. So as we have a quiet moment here, as we begin this journey in the Minor Prophets, maybe you can just sit quietly or close your eyes, bow your heads, whatever works for you, and just wonder, in what way is God courting you? This morning, is there a way that he's starting all over to, or you'd like him to start all over with you? Is there some way in which he's inviting you to have a second chance, a new beginning, and to experience again the againness of his love?